Hey, welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Homebrew All-Stars, where we interview 25 of the world's best brewers and bring you their secrets, tips, and tricks. Now, between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. So, what do we got going on today, Drew? Well, on today's episode, we're rearranging the format just slightly, you may notice. <laughs> we are tricking you. But, first we're going to start with our traditional feedback. We're going to go into the pub because, let's face it, this has been a busy week in the beer news. Uh, we're going to talk a lot of beer news and a couple of different projects that are going on and things we think that you should know about. Then we'll head into the library where we're going to talk about, uh, well, Terry's latest malt report. Uh, then we're going to go into the lab. We're going to announce a brand new experiment and walk you through exactly what it is that we're doing. Uh, we have the Igors actually in flight right now. It's awesome. And then we're going to be heading into the lounge where we're going to be talking to Jessica Davis from the brewery, where she's going to tell us exactly what the hell somebody does in a brewery when they do QA. So sit back, get ready to learn because, hey, it's actual functional knowledge. And then from there, we're going to tackle your questions with another round of Ask Denny and Drew, offer up a quick tip, and then something other than beer, and send you on your merry way so that you can experiment with some more beer. Now, how does that sound? So sit back, relax, and uh, we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by the American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 46,000 beer lovers. Since 1978, the AHA and its members have worked to promote and celebrate the homebrewing hobby and community. Join today for six issues of Zymergy Magazine, AHA member discounts on beer, food, and brewing supplies, access to exclusive events and competitions, and a bunch of other cool stuff that'll take too long to list here. Head over to homebrewersassociation.org or experimentalbrew.com and get yourself a membership. And by you, our listeners, go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the AHA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. We're going to start off today's show with some listener feedback, uh, which was kind of painful and definitely true. So take it, Drew. No actual specific feedback. I don't have anybody whose uh, feedback I'm going to read to you today. But we have heard a couple of comments out there from people talking about the whole Brutan B stuff and uh, objecting to what they may see as a certain level of subjectivity or us being in the bank for uh, the product. And just wanted to stop and address a couple of concerns. One, we receive absolutely no money from Anjanomoto or anybody else for the Brutan B experiment. 
the only thing that we've actually received is uh, small packets of Brutan B. I think, Denny, you have one, I have one, and that's what that's been the light of what we've gotten. Yeah, that's right. I, I got one from Joe at the uh, Craft Brewers Conference uh, about a year ago, and I've been working on that one. Yeah, so that's where the Brutan B stuff came from. That's why we're why we've been playing with it. Denny has a big belief in it, and we really wanted to kind of prove it out. That's the reason why we've been talking about it. And we do actually have a follow up experiment that we will talk about at a much later time. But that's the extent of our actual relationship uh, with Anjanomoto is just the fact that hey, you know, we've been uh, given a free sample. Here, go try this. So no money exchanging hand. We don't get a commission, uh, absolutely nothing about it, except for uh, we think it's kind of a cool product, and we want to see what we can do with it. And, and the other thing that uh, people have kind of taken issue with is uh, our interpretation of the results, and some people feel like uh, we spent too much time discussing the outliers uh, rather than uh, focusing on the core of the results. And, you know, to a certain extent, I have to agree with that. Uh, I can tell you a couple things. We have some Igors who are very well versed in statistics who will be helping us in the future as we uh, try and aggregate uh, experimental results to hopefully get a little bit more uh, information out of those. And uh, also, you know, I got to say, people, we haven't said this for a long time, but remember, this is citizen science. All we're doing is trying to put together some observations and put them out there to you. And I don't think that uh, we would ever claim that it is the be-all, end-all grain of truth for everybody. So take it for what it is. uh, Take it or don't take it. And uh, hopefully some of that information will be useful to you. So moving on. Yes, indeed. Let's move on. Okay. We have some announcements here. First of all, there is a new Brew Files episode that came out a week ago uh, called Hello Mother, Hello Father, where we uh, talk about uh, a beer for mothers and a beer for fathers. Uh, check it out. There's a link on our website. You can download it or listen to it there. That is Brew Files number nine. Yeah, number I, nine. I, I have to admit, I'm surprised by two things. One, I've yes. got no feedback about the episode title. <laughs> Yeah. Because uh, you might have to be that's old a, enough to remember that one. And I was going to say, man, that's because I mean, most people are younger than the two of us. That's true. And then number two is I'm also surprised we haven't gotten any feedback about the very first recipe we discussed in the episode, the mother's beer. Yeah, uh, it's interesting. If you haven't heard it yet, uh, there's a uh, mother who is uh, breastfeeding who has come up with a beer that she thinks will help her with that. Uh, and before you get all upset about a breastfeeding mother drinking, uh, as you will hear in that episode, she checked it out with her doctor first, as should anyone who's considering doing something similar. There we go. Okay. Next announcement. Uh, well, I don't know if many people are aware of it, but uh, Oregon State University in Corvallis, Oregon, has a hop and brewing archive because of the uh, great connection of Oregon and craft brewing. And uh, they have uh, interviews and materials from a number of people involved in the craft brewing world, uh, most notably Fred Eckhart. Uh, And uh, I was honored recently when they uh, asked me to donate some material and sit down for an interview. So I did that, and we will have a link to that interview on our website, so you can go listen to it if you want to. 
And even more importantly, you can go listen to some of the other wonderful people they've interviewed there, like uh, Fred, like Dave Wills from Fresh Hops, Terry Farendorf, founder of the Pink Boots Society, and even our dear lab friend Dana Garvis is interviewed there. So uh, there's a bunch of stuff to keep you busy for a long time. Check it out. It's pretty darn interesting. Yeah, definitely and go check out the archives. You don't have to watch Denny's interview, but go watch the other one. Yeah, that, and that's that's the point I was trying to make there. There's some actually like good interviews there. So if you want to check those out, do so. And finally, we have Homebrew Con coming up June 15th through 17th in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, it's a wonderful event. If you've never been to one of these, you definitely should. We'll post a link to more information on the website so you can find out how you can get registered and go to the conference. It is several days of fun and beer and meeting really, really great people. For me, that's the best part of the whole thing. And uh, we will be doing a podcast from the trade show floor on Friday afternoon from 2.30 to 4.30 from the booth of our good buddies at Brewcraft. So please come by, uh, get in on the podcast. We'll, uh, we'd like to have you come and talk to us about what you're doing in the homebrew world. Ask us questions to see if you can stump us. Uh, the whole event is going to be just be great, huh? Oh, yeah. This is the highlight for me, I think, of my brewing year because, well, I mean, you get to hear a lot of people talk. You get to see a lot of really cool things and new ideas that are coming up. You get to run into your homebrew heroes. So, you know, I, I get to go fanboy at Randy, uh, for instance. <laughs> and, you know, it's just, it's a really great time. It's three days in a safe space with all these other crazy people who are going to listen to your beer stories, your beer talk, your methodology, you're ranting and raving about ingredients, and not glaze over. Yeah, it's it's like the height of beer geekery, isn't it? Yeah, so it's really awesome. Uh, keep an eye out. There are uh, various parties that are going on, uh, obviously, uh, both before and after and during. Just keep an eye out on everybody's feeds, because you'll see where everybody's going to be. But, like we said, come Friday at 2.30 p.m., be at the Brewcraft booth, because we'll be doing our podcast. That's right, and we need everybody to help with the sing-along. <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in iTunes, click the Amazon, AHA, or BYO links on the website, by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more for our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is the San Gabriel Valley Humane Society. And hey, don't forget, we still have shirts and signed books in our store at experimentalbrew.com. Come on, you want our signatures on these things? We spend you a lot. You do. We spend a lot of time with Sharpies just to get that just right. <laughs> and don't forget. Uh, if you interact with one of our sponsors, go and buy products from them, which, hey, we highly encourage. Uh, don't forget to tell them that you came to them via Experimental Brewing. It's helpful. It's good for them to know that you're listening to us and hearing their messages. So, please. All righty. We're going to uh, take a quick break while we wander over to the Experimental Brewing Pub. And when we come back, we will be talking about the beer life. See you in a minute. Interested in making wine or mead? Don't settle for lesser yeast. Instead, use Vintner's Harvest. Just ask Tyler Barber from Adventures in Homebrewing, who says, Vintner's Harvest yeast is all I have used for the past four years. I have done several small test batches with Vintner's Harvest, and I really like the MA33 for meads and fruit wines. Vintner's Harvest seems to tailor their yeast strains to the styles of meads and wines the home Vintner is most likely to make. 
Find Vintner's Harvest Yeast wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, beer, beer. We are sitting here in the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of Everywhere and Nowhere in Your Town, USA. We're drinking a couple beers and talking about the beer life. Uh, what you having this week, Drew? Well, you guys remember when we talked about our favorite April Fool's jokes, we mentioned uh, the April Fool's joke that wasn't an April Fool's joke, a.k.a. the brewery announcing that they were launching a brand new brand called Offshoot, Offshoot Beer Company, because they never wanted to make an IPA under the brewery brand, so they wanted to make an IPA. So given that we have a lot of heavy news to talk about today, I decided I'm going big. And uh, my friends over there, they sent me a couple of cans of their brand new IPAs, and I'm having their Offshoot Beer Company Better Late Than Never double IPA that they they bill as a hazy, juicy double IPA with Mosaic, Vic Secret, and Citra. And comes in a nice, respectable 8.5. You just said that to tweak me, right? I would never tweak you, dear sir. <laughs> Yeah, fine. Okay, well, I am uh, I am drinking a, an IPA that I brewed uh, with the Mecca Grade uh, Lamanta Malt, and we'll be talking more about that in uh, upcoming shows. But uh, it's a it's a really nice nice malt, and I guess the big news is that I am drinking this beer at uh, four ounces a day because I'm kind of like. Uh, restricting my beer intake in order to be as svelte and good-looking as Drew is. So uh, I'm down to uh, to four ounces of beer a day in an attempt to lose a bunch of weight. Hmm. Yeah, well, I can guarantee you, you probably already met the goal of looking as good as me, at least if you ask my wife. <laughs> oh, that's kind. Uh, yeah, you know what? Uh, for, for the first couple days, it was pretty bad, but I'm discovering how you can actually make four ounces of beer last for two hours if you work on it. Yeah, see, my plan for making four ounces of beer last for two hours is to pour myself four ounces of beer, drink it in 30 seconds, and then wait another hour, 59 minutes, and 30 seconds. <laughs> yeah, well, when you know it's all the beer you're going to be getting in a day, you kind of like uh, want to stretch it out as much as possible. And uh, truthfully, on weekends, I actually revert and uh, ha- allow myself a couple beers a day, but uh, I'm just spending more time on the treadmill to make up for it. There you go. All right, well, hey, how about we get down to some news? Yes, let's talk about something interesting, shall we? Yeah, well, uh, you've got something about water and charities and stuff? Yeah, um, let me uh, let me kind of give a bit of background on this. We have a, uh, a river near here called the Mackenzie that uh, provides a large portion of the water for this area, especially for the breweries in this area. So there is an organization called the Mackenzie River Trust that uh, takes care of looking after the river and making sure that things are uh, are good with it. And there's a couple breweries here that have gotten involved with that. Uh, Oakshire makes a beer called Watershed IPA, and uh, 1% of all of the money from that beer goes to the Mackenzie River Trust. 
And just recently, Ninkasi Brewing, uh, which is available in a much wider area than Oakshire, has started a drive to donate $20 from every keg of beer they sell to the Watershed Trust. Basically, what's happening is you buy a Ninkasi beer. Every time the bar orders a keg of beer from Ninkasi, Ninkasi will donate $20 to the McKenzie Watershed Trust. Now, that's a really, really cool thing. Uh, but because not everyone has access to Ninkasi beer, the real reason I wanted to talk about this was to encourage you to go out and maybe set up something in your area that's similar. Find a good cause, see if you can get breweries on board with it, and try and raise money for them. Because, let's face it, most craft breweries out there are really community-minded because it's that community, the local community, that supports them. So, binding Kasi beer, uh, support the, uh, the McKenzie River, but at the same time, Go out and start something like this in your hometown. Be an agitator. Do something for other people. Yeah, and I was going to say, here in L.A., I mean, we have a an organization called the Friends of the L.A. River, which is actually a massive charity group. And they do, their, uh, they do these big parties, and we actually pour beer for them every year, uh, the, my homebrew club. And so it's it's a real big party, but we do that to help support it because what they're trying to do is – you know, rehab the LA River and return more of it to sort of its natural state as opposed to the big concrete ditch that everybody knows from Greece and uh, and countless other Hollywood movies. So last year I got to go pour my homebrew and listen to Moby, and Moby performed oh, cool. live. And, yeah, Moby Moby performed live and in front of us, close enough to where I was standing that I could have picked up the hose from one of my kegs and sprayed him with beer. So I have it a was, question. Yeah. When a whale sings, what does it sound like? Whatever. Um, <laughs> but along that same sort of line, one of my favorite breweries here in L.A., and one of the earliest ones in terms of the sort of renaissance of uh, beer, uh, Eagle Rock uh, Brewing Company, which is located not too far away from where I live, they l- launched a whole series of beers that they think, uh, if I remember correctly, they're called the Day Hiker Series. And they come in cans and a whole bunch of different uh varieties but all basically like a hoppy uh, hoppy beer and the money that they raise from that goes to help uh fund restoration projects in the san gabriel mountains just above where the brewery is so they're they're going and actually working with the the angeles forest trust and you know raising money so that we can have better green spaces here in los angeles cool man yep yep you're gonna find that most craft breweries are into doing good things for good people so uh, find yourself a good cause uh, and set up something like that in your area. There's got to be something there that uh, can use the donation, and there's got to be a brewery around that will help you with it. Yep. All right. Well, hey, while we're talking about communities, this is another story that kind of happened this last week. For listeners, you'll remember a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, we had Brian Finstermacher on the show from Southern Brewing and Winemaking in Tampa, Florida, in Seminole Heights. And, you know, he was the one who had the sort of the crazy plan about, like, you know, time schedules to keep multiple beers moving so that he could do three full batches in a day. Well, they just recently got into the news because the homebrew shop slash tap room, they also built a really nice beer garden on the back. And it's become a sort of a family destination. 
go to the bar, grab a beer, go sit down in the beer garden, you know, with your kids, they, they have games and all that sort of fun stuff. That's become a real kind of cool hangout, you know, that it's like the homebrew store, but more. And they did a really great job with all this, but they just got into the news because they just posted a sign at their store that is getting them a lot of flack, and it absolutely amazes me. So what it says here is, Parents, Southern loves well-behaved children, so we ask you that you please adhere to the following ground rules for safety and comfort of all of our guests. Children must be under the direct supervision of an adult at all times, and the adult is responsible for ensuring that they are not disruptive to our other guests. Specifically, there should be no running, no yelling, screaming, or excessive noise, no throwing rocks or any other objects, no tampering with the fire pit or fountains or damaging any other property. If your children cannot behave in a manner considerate to our other guests, you may be asked to leave. So I don't see why people would have any problem with that whatsoever. I know, but it's it's funny because they posted these rules because they did. They literally had kids like picking up rocks in the beer garden and throwing them at cars, either in their parking lot or driving by on the street. They had kids damaging the fire pits and all this. And uh, truthfully, it, it comes down to the same thing. You know, a handful of people not paying attention to their kids and a handful of kids causing issues. Uh, you know, I, I got to say, this is a real pet peeve of mine, no, no matter what. What, people not paying attention to their kids? Yeah, exactly. What I thought was interesting was a lot of the response to this was you had a lot of people going, oh, hey, you know, that seems fairly reasonable that uh, it's kind of sad you even have to lay those rules out. You know, those seem like basic societal rules. Right. And so that was the majority of the response. But then you had some people who were on the angle of, no kids should be anywhere near beer ever. Brah, get your kids out of my space. Which, uh, okay, I, okay. I, I completely understand. You know, some people just don't want to be around kids. But a lot of the breweries, a lot of our microbreweries and tap rooms, and, and particularly in Tampa, they've made these into sort of very family-friendly spaces. You know, the average person who's going into one of these places is having like a pint and a flight. And they're not there, you know, getting, you know, hammered. So they they made these into family spaces and they're kind of cool. And I've, I've always thought that, I mean, look, I'm not a kid person in the slightest, but I've always thought that being able to introduce kids to responsible drinking early was a far better idea and plan than how we typically do it, which is, no, you shall not be around drunk uh, drunkenness until you're 21. So that's always been my response. Yeah. So, like I welcome, I, I welcome well-behaved kids because, hey, you know, sometimes they're amusing. Well, not only that, man, but, you know, from a business standpoint, there are, you know, parents who may want to go out and have a beer and can't afford or can't find a babysitter for the kids or, you know, they're out running some errands with the kids and they just want to stop by. I have no problem with kids being in these places uh, as long as they're behaving themselves to the standards that people would expect of an adult. Yeah. And if if you don't want to go someplace that has kids, then stay home. Well, and there's plenty of non-kid spaces. But the other reaction, of course, which was the the one I think I was most prepared for, were the people who got really offended by any of these rules being spelled out and taking it personally like uh, Southern was calling out their kids. And how yeah. dare you say that I can't bring my kids someplace and blah, blah, blah. And Southern, of course, is going, uh, we didn't say that. We said, just keep your kids under control. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, yeah. it, like, seriously, there was a whole contingent of people on social media who were all, Gerard, my kid is a special snowflake and, you know, causes no harm and is a pure <laughs> angel. And how dare you? Yeah. How dare you imply my kid isn't perfect? Uh, That's the honey issue, child? isn't it? Well, I was going to say, honey, ain't none of us perfect. <laughs> Ain't none of your spawn are perfect. 
I sure yeah. as hell wasn't. I thought that was funny because to me it was like you saw these three different reactions, one of which was the one that I would expect most people to take, and it seemed to be the one that most people took. But the other two were so, like, way outside of how seriously I thought people would take it. And yet, there we are. Yeah, and you know what? We want to know what you guys think about it, too. So uh, shoot us an email at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Tell us what you think about uh, Southern's rules uh, specifically, and what do you think about kids in bars in general? If, should they be there? Is it a problem for you? Uh, if it is a problem, why is it a problem? Look, to me, it's like, do you think, should kids ever be in a brewery or a bar? Or, you know, you know do the do kids interrupt your sacred space of communing with the pint? <laughs> yeah, right. And if they do, should you be taking yourself less seriously? No. Okay, so let's move on because here we go again. Yeah, and this is why I need to drink. All right, <laughs> so... In this week, uh, as we're recording this, two major moves have happened in the beer world, and we're not actually going to talk a lot about the major moves in the beer world, because we've talked about this before. But in case you haven't heard, uh, Wicked Weed out of Asheville, North Carolina, who are well known for rapid expansion from when they opened in 2012, uh, and for their IPAs and their sour projects and the Funkatorium thing that they do, they sold to Anheuser-Busch. So 100% owned by Anheuser-Busch. Now, usual sort of marketing message sent out there, oh, we'll still be in control, la, 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 la. Uh, it is what it is. And, of course, I think the funniest part about the whole thing is, for whatever reason, a lot more people are taking this one personally than I think any of the other cells that we've seen. This is the one that seems to be inspiring the most fury. Why, why do you think that is? You know... One, because I think it's Asheville, and mm-hmm. Asheville very much kind of like uh, Portland having kind of its insular beer community aspect to it, right? You know, like this is our special our special thing. And so uh, kind of like a more direct hit than, say, 10 Barrel selling out was to Portland. Right. And the other one is, I also think it's something about the fact that like, these guys are known for their sour beers. And... I think with the amount of passion that people have about the sour beer thing and really the fact that sour beer is not a thing that you can really do as a mass market product, I think that that takes a lot of people sort of like with a big emotional hit. Well, you know what, though, and I think that that brings up a point, and don't get me wrong, it's not like I am necessarily in favor of any of these uh, buyouts or takeovers, but people say, oh, no, with ABI buy in these places, the beer is going to be dumbed down, everything will change. And that is the one point that I have to disagree with because ABI is buying these places based on their beers and the customer base around them. And it just wouldn't make sense for them to start totally altering things and blowing their investment by changing everything that made it worth investing in. Oh no, like no, no. Said, come on. No, they they're they're buying these places so that they can have their ABI distributors walk into a, a bar or a restaurant and say, "Oh, you want to sell good beer here? We have a complete lineup for you." Yeah, exactly. And exactly. Make, and so make that's all that's why taps ABI products. Right. And that's why it doesn't make any sense for them to change anything about those beers. Regardless, the that sale happened, uh people are what it is. Congratulations to the folks behind Wicked Weed for you know, getting some money out of a out of a brewery project and for building a product that uh, got noticed. 
Yeah. But right. the other uh, the other one that happened was, of course, Loganitas, who had sold 50% of the company to Heineken, what, I think, two years ago. Yeah. Uh, announced the day after the Wicked Weed announcement happened in a clever move of, well, everybody else is mad about this. Maybe we can sneak this out there while nobody will notice. Uh, agreed to sell the other 50% of Loganitas to Heineken. So Heineken now completely owns Loganitas. And Tony McGee has been moved uh, from being just the owner of Loganitas to now he's uh, in charge of craft beer efforts for Heineken. Well, what can I say? You know, for me, one of the biggest implications of uh, this is that Little Something Wild has always been one of my very favorite beers, and I just don't know if I'm going to be able to bring myself to buy it anymore. Yeah, I know. And I've always been a little... I think the Lagunese thing was always a little surprising to me because of how strongly Tony, you know, ran that craft beer pirate flag. You know, yeah, damn the man, independent type thing. But that is what it is. But that's not really actually what I want to talk about today, because we know that the ABI is doing this, right? We know it. If you, if it matters to you, then it matters to you. If it doesn't matter to you, then okay. And I have no problems with that. If you want to, if that's going to be what you want to drink, that's what you drink. But here's the here's the fun one. This is a new angle, and I hadn't realized that they were doing this. So, if you've been watching the news, you know that there was a new show that launched on Vice about home brewing, starring somebody behind an ABI brewery. That's about the extent of it I'm going to talk about because of my own personality conflicts there. But it's sponsored by ABI, and that brought that caught a lot of people's attention. You know, because here's Anheuser Busch doing a show that's effectively promoting their brands as a whole TV show. It's like the old advertorial type thing. And then started looking around and noticing profiles written up about, you know, the show and the brewery involved and all this sort of fun stuff and ran across two websites. Uh, one of which is called the beer necessities, which is such a clever cutesy name that I kind of hate myself for actually not thinking of it before. <laughs> and the beer necessities launched not too long ago, and they actually have been doing a lot of craft beer coverage and everything else. And then they did coverage of this new show that's appeared. Well, it turns out the beer necessities is owned by Anheuser-Busch. They've set up a whole website to talk about craft beer in sort of a stealth way of promoting their brands. And when they launched, they did in such a quiet fashion in terms of who their ownership was that... Some folks out there in the craft beer world were interviewed and now suddenly feel duped to the point where uh, Beachwood Brewing Company down here in Long Beach got interviewed and had an article put up there. And once they realized exactly who owned Beer Necessities and what the hell the whole thing was about, wrote a scathing letter in social media effectively saying, hey, this is uncool. Take the article down about us because we don't need your publicity. Right on. You know, because... The whole point is mixed message, right? You know, keep that, uh, keep confusing the market as to what is craft for whatever that means. You know, what's independent, which is the term that Beachwood prefers. You know, what's independent brewing, what's, you know, craft brewing, what's owned by the macros. And it turns out this isn't the only venue that they're doing it with. So beernecessities.com is the one that got into the news recently. But, you know, as a beer writer, I get approached a lot to to possibly write for varying venues. I turned most of them down because I don't have the time. But 
last late last year I got approached by a group called October that's launching a craft beer website. And it's run by Pitchfork Media, which is pretty awesome because Pitchfork's pretty big and a well-known name. And I was actually really curious and intrigued by it until I did some more digging and research and found that it's a Pitchfork Media product in conjunction with ZX Ventures. And ZX Ventures is ABI's venture firm. So this means now that there are at least two web channels out there that ABI is setting up or partially funding to kind of confuse the message out there about good beer. This is kind of weird and insidious. Yeah, I mean, talk about confusing the message. The, they're calling the group that's buying all these craft breweries the high end. I mean, come on. Yep. But I mean, to me, this is... I mean, Look, with the buyouts, there's still the beer product, right? You can decide for yourself whether or not that's a thing. And, you know, you can figure out fairly quickly about the ownership thing. I mean, there's a huge to-do going down in San Diego about 10 Barrel opening a brew pub down there. Um, and you, But you can you can spread that message pretty easily. But this little act of controlling these channels is it's almost Orwellian, I think. Yeah, um, it, it's, I mean, it, a corporate it, Orwellian. <laughs> Yeah, I guess I guess that's a good way to look at it, you know. For uh, for corporate strategies, it's pretty normal, right? Oh, it's fucking clever, is what it is. But it is yeah. what it is. So, <laughs> I to me, it's like you can. It, it, to me, I think the average consumer, or at least the average beer enthusiast, is going to have a much easier time being able to say, "Okay, uh, no ten barrel, no goose island, no illusion, no blah 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 blah." I think it's a hell of a lot harder for the average person to realize, oh, hey, you got to take stuff from the Beer Necessities or October with a grain of salt because of its sponsorship or its Yeah, founding. right. And, and that's kind of what we're talking about right now. We're not telling you how to think or how to vote with your dollars or anything else. We're just helping to make you aware of what's going on so that you can make your own decision and be informed about it. Right? Yeah. And that was the pub life brought to you by Bud Light Limerita. <laughs> yeah, that ain't ever going to happen. <laughs> okay, I think it's time to finish up our beers and get out of here and uh, head over to the brewery for the malt report, huh? Yeah, I think so. Let's go do that. We're going to take a quick break, wander over to the brewery, and we'll be right back. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mecca Grade. For more information, please visit MeccaGrade.com. It's time. It's time for us to talk about beer and beer ingredients and brewing stuff and brewing practices. So today we figured that we would uh, stop by and visit with our friend Terry, who 
has a habit of posting a regular malt report uh, up on her uh, Facebook feed. Uh, so, Denny, why don't you get us started with what Terry is telling us about this year's barley crop? We're going to start with Europe. France and the UK have been relatively dry and gotten some rainfall in the last week. They still need more rainfall in the coming weeks to make up for the deficit uh, that they got back in April. There are reports of reduced spring barley plantings in Ukraine due to dryness and uh, widespread rainfall uh, for the second week of May should provide some relief for the winter barley crops and the spring crops. Down in Australia, in eastern and southeastern South Australia, have had uh, previous good rains with little rain in the forecast, which is great for planting. This week was dry throughout the Australian cropping belt, which means that seeding has been progressing well throughout Australia. There was some dryness on the west coast in April and continuing into May, but it's still early in the sowing process, so it's not really a major issue. And jumping up to Canada, there's uh, still not much seeding taking place throughout Canada, but the weather looks a little bit more promising this week. I think it's been as wet up there as it has been around here. And hopefully seeding will begin this weekend with no major concerns because it's still early in the season. So what's going on in the U.S., Drew? Well, first, I got to stop and say, man, you sound like a weatherman when you do that. You, you know, yeah. when I was growing up in Iowa, we used to have the uh, the hog and soybean reports on the news every day. And I think I've been influenced by that. <laughs> That's like, eh, I always sound like I'm riding the back of a tram at Disney World. <laughs> All right. And over here in the U.S., yeah, basically... Things are good. We're actually ahead of schedule. Uh, Idaho is like 77% planted. The rest of the U.S. is about a third planted in terms of barley percentages, which is uh, continuing upward. And all the the weather that we had over the winter here in the West has pretty much meant that everybody's in good shape for water. So for once, we're not fighting drought here in the West, at least for this year. Yeah. So everybody seems to be happy and uh, topsoil is in good shape. And we're we're really kind of moving. Now, the thing that I'm actually surprised about is, according to Terry, she says that crop prices won't actually really be set until the European malt comes in. Yeah, that's what actually determines the value of the malt uh, crop for the year. Because I guess if Europe has a bad year, the American stuff will be more valuable. If Europe has a good year, the American stuff will be devalued. But the other thing was, I don't know why I never thought about this. I think maybe it's because I've spent too much of my life in Florida and California. I hadn't realized that barley gets planted this late in the year. I mean, we're in May. Well, it depends on when they're going to harvest it. Duh, huh? Yeah, I know. But still, it's like, okay, so this is the primary barley crop, and it doesn't get planted until May. And, of course, I'm thinking, well, that seems late. And then I go, oh, wait, they have winter. (laughs) Yeah, right. And, uh, you know, just to uh, keep you guys informed on what's going on, we're going to be having an all-malt show coming up here in the uh, near future where we will talk to maltsters and uh, barley growers uh, about how they do it and uh, what the challenges are. So I think that's going to be pretty darn fascinating. I do, too. I, I, I like the chance to explore another ingredient, and particularly with uh, some of these new malts that are arriving, uh, sort of a revitalization of one of the big four. Yeah, right, right. Okay, so there is the malt report up to date from this week. Uh, looks like uh, in general things are good. Uh, too early to tell about some things, but uh, 
don't see any real big problems on the horizon for the malt crop this year. Yay, everybody keep your fingers crossed. <laughs> That's right. Okay, time for another break. We're going to run over to the lab and talk about the next experiment that we've got coming up. So stick around and we'll be right back. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art, they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. over here in the lab and uh, we're going to be telling you about our next experiment that is actually in progress right now uh drew fill people in on what's going on right so marshall over at brewlosophy did an experiment i don't know about a month or two back uh where he was talking about biotransformation versus standard dry hopping and whether or not uh drinkers could tell the difference and he put together a fairly elaborate uh, little experiment where he brewed two batches of a new england ipa and did them with a you know sort of two separate brew days, a couple of days apart. One batch getting dry hops in that primary at high croissant. The second one only getting the dry hops when the beer was in secondary. So he did the first one so that the beer would get into secondary at the same time that the other one was getting croissant, so they could have the dry hops on board at the, for the same amount of time before they went off and got packaged. His results showed that. No significance. Only 11 out of uh, 28 testers were able to detect the difference between the two in a non-visual test. We thought it'd be fun to revisit that with our Igor format and see what we could see across a broader number of trials. So what we gave our Igors the charging orders to do was to brew a batch of what we're calling the Transform Ale, which is a very, very simple kind of pale ale, because a lot of these New England IPAs are actually really New England pale ales. And we wanted to minimize any sort of haze-inducing ingredients in there, so there's no oats, no nothing. It's literally just domestic two-row Maris Otter, which is my standard pale ale IPA blend, and a little bit of Munich. Single infusion mash, and then we have them hop it with Centennial, both as bittering and as a five-minute addition, along with some mosaic at five minutes. And then an ounce each of Centennial mosaic as the dry hop. And what we were asking them to do is... To drop a batch and split, so either do five gallons and do two and a half gallons in one, two and a half gallons in another, or do a 10-gallon batch and do five, two five-gallon portions, one of which they will wait until the beer comes up to Croizen and add those two ounces of dry hops. They'll record the number of days that the beer is on the dry hops in primary, rack the beers over to secondary at the same time when they've reached terminal gravity, and then dry hop the second carboy with the other charge of dry hops. So now we had one beer that has had dry hops in primary for three days, and the second one, they will leave in secondary on the dry hops for the exact same length of time, so another three days. And then rack and package both of those and serve them up. So the idea is to basically keep the dry hopping exposure to the exact same amount of time, and leaving the primary difference being 
whether or not the things had high croissant at the time. So we also asked them to keep the water chemistry relatively neutral. They're uh, also splitting up because people wanted to try some more experiments. And hey, why the hell not? Uh, we're having them try some of the testers are using Yeast 1318, which, of course, everybody says is very susceptible to biotransformation or or at least is very fond of doing biotransformation. And then also Yeast 1056, which people say is fairly neutral and doesn't do a biotransform. So we're going to have that as an impact as well. And then just because why leave it at one thing or even two things, why not try and go for a third thing here? We are going to ask our Igors to do a blind trial like we always do, right? You know, a triangle test in opaque cups. And then we're also going to ask them to do one where the, the tasters can actually see the beer. So it's going to be a visual test. It's no longer blind, but now we can see, okay, if you look at the beers, can you tell the difference, right? Because that's one of the aspects here that we're, we're never really exploring with any of these organoleptic triangle tests that we're doing, right? We're getting the, the nose element, we're getting the taste element, but we never get the visual element. And we right. do that usually on purpose because usually that's something that we really want to isolate. But in the case of biotransformation, you know, we want to see, okay, is there a taste difference? Is there a aroma difference? And then we also want to say, okay, if you look at the two beers, can you tell a difference? Because that is another aspect of the drinking thing. Think about how offended people get by the whole New England hazy IPA thing. So does the haze actually also appear in this? And can you tell the difference just from that? If you remember last uh, last year at HomebrewCon, Marshall came on the show and gave us a blind triangle test. And Denny and I both got it wrong. And That's it was right. a New England IPA experiment. And it was one of those things where, taste-wise, I, I was convinced I had this right. And, of course, I had it wrong. And then the second I chose, I looked down at the glasses and looked down from the top and could finally see the beer and went, son of a – that was wrong. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the other reason that we are doing all these variations is because we're not exploring how to make a good New England IPA. We're exploring – what happens in terms of the interactions between hops and uh, a couple different yeast strains. And, uh, you know, the, the tasting will be interesting, but again, we don't really care as much about which beer people prefer as we do to find out what the differences are in these beers. Indeed. So that's what we're doing for this biotransformation experiment. It's really just kind of building on the work that Marshall did with a slight rejiggering to make it a little bit easier for our crew to deal with. Uh, what do you think? What do you think we're going to find? Uh, do you care about 1318 versus 1056? And actually, really, what I want to know is, what do you guys think about doing the non-blind test? You know, does, yeah. the visual, does the visual impact thing matter to you, or do you think that's a, a canard, a lark, you know, something that we shouldn't be doing? Let me know. And it matters to me because I'm, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm curious about that too. I'm curious about any differences, no matter what they are. So, uh, you know, again, like I said, this is not so much about finding a preferred beer as finding out what these differences are. And, uh, once again, we want to thank all of our Igors who are participating in this experiment. And we want to give a big shout out to our Igor Wrangler, Jason Mundy, for kind of keeping everything going while Drew and I are doing other stuff. There you go. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Jason. All right. Hey, I think it's time for us to go lounge. Yeah, let's do that. Let's uh, head over to the lounge, kick back in those comfy chairs, and uh, listen to me talk to Jessica Davis. There we go. Uh, we'll be right back. 
Y-East is collaborating with homebrew icons and top-rated hobby podcasters Denny Kahn and Drew Beecham to bring you the Y-East private collection strains for 2017. Our second quarter features a great variety of strains for saisons and related styles as we shift into spring and the warmer weather ahead. With their rustic and refreshing profiles and versatile pairings, there's no better way to welcome the new season. Try something funky with our Cezanne Brett blend, go classic Belgian with Beer de Garde, or discover Forbidden Fruit's unique flavors in a wit beer. Ladies and gentlemen, we are here in the lounge, comfy jackets, reclining chairs, another beer, maybe a pipe, maybe with tobacco. I've got my pipe, but... I was going to say, maybe with tobacco, maybe not. Maybe. Uh, <laughs> but here we are, we are here today to talk, well, let's, we, we spent a lot of time talking about brewers and brewing and all that sort of stuff, while at the same time, we're sitting here trying to do some beery, sciencey type stuff. But, you know... We've never actually really talked to beery, sciencey type people. So. We have now. What we have going on here is I reached out to my good friends at the brewery, uh, the same folks who were doing the offshoot beer that I had during the, the pub life. And I asked, hey, I know you guys have a big QC program because you guys have so many different things going on that it's almost insane that you wouldn't. Do you have somebody who can who can really reach out and talk to us? And so they put us in touch with the woman that we're going to talk to now, uh, Jessica Davis. Uh, unfortunately, I wasn't around for this discussion. I'm really sad about that because I wanted to have this discussion. But <laughs> Denny, you you got to sit down and uh, talk with her for about 20 minutes or so and, and learn some good stuff, huh? Yeah, no kidding. Uh, we th- we're going to talk to Jessica mm-hmm. about uh, her background, how she got involved in doing what she does. Um, the, what she what she actually does every day, and uh, even the difference between QC and QA, which uh, is very interesting. So, uh, grab yourselves a beer, unless you're driving. Sit back and uh, listen to this conversation with Jessica Davis. Okay, we have Jessica Davis, the Q and A person for the brewery, on the line with us. How you doing today, Jessica? Fabulous. How are you? Uh, I'm I'm good actually. So um, let's uh, let's just dive right in here. Tell us uh, a little bit about your background and how you ended up doing Q and A at a brewery. Well, I uh, started out. I got a degree in biology, and then uh, ended up working in pharma and biotech for about seven years. Um, the company that I had been working at, uh, started laying people off. Um, I wasn't part of a layoff, but you know, that's the volatility of pharma. There's a lot of times just a drug doesn't go through, <laughs> they just start laying people off. So I started looking for other, uh, positions. Um, and I happened to live close to Stone Brewing Company at the time. And, and I was there eating dinner one, one night and I was looking through those big glass windows and I was like, that looks like a lot of fun. So, uh, I applied and, 
Mitch Steele and uh, John Egan at the time uh, gave me an opportunity to be uh, assistant brewer at Stone Brewing Company. So I did that for about six months uh, until the uh, current QA person that was working at Stone uh, left. And I took over. Um, and I've been doing that ever since. Wow. That's, yeah. that's amazing. So how did you get involved in beer in the first place? I think it was just living in San Diego that was craft brewing. Right. Um, and when was all, when did all this happen? When, what year was this? <laughs> I started working at Stone in 2009. I've been at the brewery for four years, a little over four years now. Um, and I'm currently running the lab, the clean barrel cellar and innovation, or, or another word for it, R&D. Right. When when most people think of, of being involved with a brewery, they think about like the brewing side of things. What made you want to get into the Q and A side? It was mainly because of my background. Um, it, you know, my education uh, was in biology, um, and the uh, working in pharma and everything. A lot of those skills were transferable to the brewing industry, obviously less strict, because um, the right. beer industry is uh, self-regulating as where <laughs> the government regulates, uh, you know, what pharma can do. But uh, a lot of the skills are very applicable, um, and that's where, that's how I got into the quality role. Right. Yeah. So, so what's, your, what's your typical day like after you get into work and have a cup of coffee or tea or whatever? <laughs> A uh, typical day is uh, looking at a lot of data. Um, also, the big key in managing anything is talking to the people that are actually doing the tests, um, making sure that there's nothing that they're seeing that is out of spec um, so that you can, you know, tackle those issues straight on. Um, but, yeah, it's a lot of just numbers and talking to people. <laughs> Wow, that's interesting. Yep. What, yeah. where, where do you get the numbers? What are they numbers on? So we run all sorts of tests. Um, uh, here at the brewery, we have an alkalizer. We have a UV spec, pH meter, uh, some really nice fancy microscopes. Uh, so, you know, it's a lot of looking at ABVs and making sure that what's coming out of the brew house is in specification. Um uh, same thing goes for BUs, making sure that the bitterness units, you know, all those numbers make sense. Um, and, you know, lots of cell count numbers. So it's a lot of just looking at these uh, aspects and making sure that you're not seeing a trend of a potential issue. So basically you're tracking everything from alcohol content and IBUs all the way through the the health of the cultures that you use to make these amazing beers, right? Correct. Yes. Yeah, so there's very much two sides. Well, actually really three sides because there's analytical, there's micro, and then there's also that sensory component. Right. So do you run tasting panels? Oh, yes. And yeah. Sensory is huge. So how often does that happen? Uh, at the brewery right now, it happens uh, twice a week, uh -huh. and it's mostly just for release and stability. So we look at, you know, is the beer ready to be released to the public? And then the other component being stability. How is the beer holding up over time? Right. Um, 
And we also do regular trainings uh, for our panelists, making sure that they understand the flavors and making sure that uh, they can recognize and articulate what they're tasting. Right. So uh, when somebody comes up with an idea for a new beer, are there like like various iterations of that that happen and you do tasting panels to try and figure out the, the best version of the recipe? Does anything like that ever happen? Yeah, so with the pilot system, a lot of times, unfortunately, the pilot system is not a direct replicate mm-hmm. of our larger system. Right. So a lot of times you're, you're taking certain liberties when you, when you scale up a recipe. But what we will do, for example, with the offshoot uh, new brand, we are looking at 10 different yeasts. Um, in a trial to really try to dive into what yeast will pr- produce uh, flavor profiles that we would like to pursue. Right. Yeah. So we will. Yeah. So we will use the pilot system to kind of figure those sorts of things out. And for the, our more crazy um, beers like Guava Libre, for example, um, that beer will be, you know, we did a couple different iterations and using different types of guava puree. So to figure out which one worked best. Right, right. You know, because it's, when you're dealing with different types of purees and concentrates and, and things like this, you really, you really have to play around with them um, because they can be terrible. <laughs> If you're not careful. <laughs> I, you know, I just had that experience on a, on a homebrew scale, uh, putting mm-hmm. some blood orange puree that I thought was pretty good into a beer and being mm-hmm. incredibly disappointed by the results. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, I can imagine on your scale it becomes a whole lot more important. I can imagine that doing something like that kind of gives you a, a fun break from just the strictly analytical side of things, huh? Oh, yeah. Uh, working on the creative side is a lot of fun. Um, we also definitely try to extend that sort of creativity outlet to uh, the rest of the company, uh, especially the brewers, you know, giving other people the opportunity to come up with concepts um, of which will generally be piloted on the the pilot system and then released to the tap room. Um, And then we kind of see how people respond to these concepts and we'll, you know, if, if it goes well, we'll, we'll, potentially use that as a basis for uh, an upcoming larger release. Wow. That, yeah. that sounds so much fun. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it could be worse. Could yeah, be yeah worse. you know, uh, you're not the person uh, shoveling out the mash tun right. <laughs> of a brew, right? Right. So right. when you work at a, at a brewery like the brewery with that yeah. seemingly endless variety of beers, is that like a challenge for you, kind of trying to deal with all these different things that come up? Yes, it, it, it can definitely be a challenge because uh, I also worked at Miller Coors for a little while. And, you know, when you make the same beers or beers over and over and over again, you really can trend information and see where things are maybe starting to break and, and you know, you can backtrack and fix it. Mm-hmm. As where with when you're always making new beers, it's difficult to train a panelist because for a sensory, for example, because it well, it's never been done before. We, <laughs> they have no idea what the flavor profile is really supposed to be. Right. Um, so, and and then it also can apply to analytical and the micro 
especially as well, because you're bringing in ingredients that you don't necessarily know what could be potentially lurking on them. Um, you know, we do try to use, uh, you know, aseptic purees and things like that, but every once in a while you have to use something that is not sterile. Right. Uh, or aseptic. So you're, you're bringing in a lot of unknowns. So that can be a lot of, but you know, and again, that, that's also what makes it fun, I think. So <laughs> even though it's a challenge, it's still something that's fun to work with. So when you guys have like a, a wonderful and funky new flavor that pops up because of some, you know, you put the, the beer in a particular barrel or something, do you try and, and culture that and keep it going? Or do you just say, wow, what a wonderful serendipitous thing. We'll see what happens. <laughs> uh, if, if we do really like something, yes, we would, we would definitely try to harness that and, and keep it going. Right. Um, you know, because if you're not, like, learning from it, you know, it's like, well, what's the point? <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, what I will say, though, is that we do try to have consistency. If it is a brand that already has an established flavor profile, you do want to keep it that way. Right. So, you know, th there's this balance between you know, the, the fun and funky versus the stability, Sure. sure. you know, cause you don't want to disappoint your customer, um, with like mischief, for example, you don't want to disappoint them by, by messing with it too much. Sure. Oh no, of course. You know, when, when people yeah. buy something that they know, they want to know that it's what they know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's why people keep going back to beers like, Bud Light, you know what I mean? Because they know what it's going to taste like. And it's why they keep going to Holiday Inn and McDonald's, yeah. too. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so do you have any any beers that were just kind of like a happy accident? Some, something happened that you didn't expect and you went, wow, this is amazing? Oh, boy. Uh, you know, that happens actually kind of a lot. Um, one beer that we are kind of working on... Um, that was a definite happy accident and it was an accident because our experimental brewer was essentially he had a bunch of miscellaneous inventory items that he just kind of wanted to you know get rid of before they expired essentially and and he he made this amazing beer with it <laughs> and uh <laughs> that's, so, a, that's a real homebrewer mentality there yeah, yeah it, <laughs> He does come from a home brewer background. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah, he does have that 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 going for him. So, uh, you know, we we made this beer, and and now we're trying to hone it in and harness it uh, to make it large scale. Uh, so, yeah, that happens all the time. Wow, that, yeah. and that's got to be fun and rewarding, you know, when something yes. like that happens. Yeah. So, what kind of input does do you have on the brewing process? I mean, you know, when you do you have a chance to go out there and say, man, something went horribly wrong or say, wow, this is uh, beyond what you guys had planned. And, and, and do you get to help instigate changes in the beer based on that? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, that, that's part of the lab function is that if we're seeing an issue, like for example, if the warts coming off the brew house and the BUs are just outrageously high, well, 
it becomes, uh, you know, where you need to go to the production manager and say, hey, you know, we're seeing these numbers. You probably need to make an adjustment for the next one. Yeah, right. So it's a very, uh, you know, there's always got to be communication between quality and what's actually happening in production. Sure. Yeah. So let's get back to homebrewing here. What what lessons do you think homebrewers should take away for doing their, you know, for, for testing their own beers or for their own practices for increasing their quality? Uh, what are things they should watch for or maybe taste or test for? I would say the main thing is just keeping it clean. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, using really good uh, sanitary technique. Uh, that's what's going to really make your, your stellar beers. Um, and even if you're handling bacterial cultures, you still got to be clean because, it, you know, I, I always hear this sort of mentality that sour beers make themselves and, well, they do not. <laughs> they do not. <laughs> Bad sour beers do. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, keeping it clean so that your cultures stay pure right. is really, really important. Right. Uh, you know, and, and with home brewing, uh, you know, you're dealing with such small volumes that I would, I would say dipping into it to test for ABV or BUs or, you know, whatever it is that you want to test for, you're actually probably creating more of a compromise of your product than, than not. So you're better off just keeping kind of hands off, right? And keeping it as clean as possible, right? And and hands off is probably about the easiest thing you can do too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. I mean, and and you just you just want to make sure that you're monitoring the culture because a lot of times people are using you know glass carboys when they're home brewing at home, and you can see a lot of times if there's an issue, right? You know, yeah. So. So, did you ever do any home brewing? I have not brewed at home, but I used to make a lot of cider. Oh, cool. Yeah, I love cider. Um, I would love to distill, but yeah, those those are, you know, working in beer for so long, you end up exploring other Oh, tell me about it. Yeah. (laughs) I've I've ruined two wonderful hobbies by turning them into jobs, and I'm trying not to do that with beer. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It it can be, uh, it can be tough. Yeah, it is. You know, and something like beer, you you don't want it to become something you have to do. You want it to be something you want to do, you know? Right. Right. So, so is there anything else you want to say about, uh, about what you do or the importance of uh, QC in general? Well, the importance, uh, so there's quality assurance and then there's quality control. Mm-hmm. And I, I would really say that it's really important to be proactive. So that's your, kind of like your quality assurance. Right. Because um, quality control is unfortunately reactive. So I would say to people, you know, um, that quality is really important from a proactive approach. Uh, that's you a know. really good way to put it, too. Yeah. So. Yeah, because you, you don't want to be reacting to problems. Right. You can help it. Okay. Well, we yeah. have been talking to Jessica Davis, who does QA for the brewery. Uh, Jessica, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thank you. It was a lot of fun. Oh, great. Great. And yeah. say hi to Patrick for me when you see him. I will. Okay. Thanks a lot. I hope to see you soon. All right. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 
All right. And that was Jessica Davis from the brewery. So, Denny, what did you walk away from this with? What I walked away with was how important QA is to a brewery and how she interacts with the people who are out there on the floor brewing beer. Uh, it was it was really cool to hear her talk about their interactions, uh, about uh, how she uh, keeps uh, track of the the various cultures that they use for brewing their beer, as well as doing the quality assessment side of the beer. I mean, there, there's two different things there, and then of course the the happy accidents that come about that uh, when you discover that something you had no idea was going to happen actually does, and it makes a killer beer. So uh, we just want to give a big thanks to Jessica for her time, and I just want to get down to the brewery and drink some of those beers. Oh, yeah. The brewery is absolutely amazing. I remember when Patrick opened that place, and it was like this one corner of a warehouse district-y type thing, and I think he pretty much now has the entire thing, except for like one unit that's still devoted uh, to making race car engines. <laughs> and he has a separate facility now to do the sour beers. So yeah, he's, he has grown that amazingly well uh, with a really sort of broad and adventurous uh, collection of beers. A lot of which are really great. They don't always work, but Hey, that's why you make them to figure yeah, out what That's works. right. And he's, uh, he's made some beers. Uh, there was a white chocolate beer that I tried. Um, mm-hmm. And that's one of those that, you know, when I first saw it, I had no no thoughts of that beer possibly working. And it was a really good beer. It, I mean, it it did. They, they knew what they were doing. So, again, part of that is due to Jessica's work, making sure that uh, the beers that need to be consistent are consistent and to make sure that all their one-offs are as high a quality as they can possibly crank out of there. Mm-hmm. Well, hey. I think it's question time. I think so, too, man. Time to go make fools of ourselves once again. So uh, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back to answer some questions. Alrighty, it is time for questions. Time to see if we are smart enough to give you guys any decent help with some of the questions you sent in. First one comes from Corey Munson via Facebook, and he says, Any tips for brewing with cinnamon? I've got a homebrew challenge that requires me to brew something where cinnamon is the star. I'm thinking maybe a darker saison might be a good fit. Thoughts? Stick or powder? Boil or dry hop? Thanks. Okay, Drew, take it. All right, yeah, it's an ingredient question, so that's mine. Uh, and what I've uh, written back to Corey before about this, and you know, I wanted to make sure everybody had the answer, was I think, well, here, no, actually, we'll just take this as if I'm answering it live. All right, so he- here's what I think when you're dealing with something like cinnamon. Cinnamon is a complex spice. It has a lot of different flavors. You want to be, well, in this case, if you're trying to make cinnamon the star of the show, you want to make cinnamon express all of those characteristics. Because otherwise, 
you're kind of only getting half of what you should be showing off. So what I suggest to Corey is that you actually do two different ways of adding the cinnamon. I'm not a huge fan normally of doing cinnamon in a boil because depending upon your sticks and depending upon your powders and all that sort of stuff, how much actually gets dissolved is sort of tricky and you're kind of taking a risk every time you do that. So what I do is take whole sticks, the best sticks that you can go find. Yeah, and that means like go to the spice house or Penzi's or, you know, your local spice mug or somebody who actually has really good cinnamon sticks. Roughly crack that. Don't go through Don't go through it in, you know, your spice grinder. Just take it, put it in a plastic bag and go hammer on it with like a meat tenderizer or sledgehammer or a water mill. I don't know. Whatever you got. Uh, run it over with your car. A beer Roughly bottle. crack this. Yeah, there you go. Roughly crack the cinnamon and then do two different techniques with it. One of which is go and throw it in some vodka, let it soak, you know, yield classical tincture. And I do that for about four days in about four ounces of vodka. And then that goes into secondary or that goes into the keg and you can do a tasting in order to figure out your right levels. You know, we've talked about that before. And that provides you that cinnamon heat, you know, all that cinnamol, you know, the thing that, that hits your mouth and makes you go, <sighs> Cinnamon. But what it misses is, even though it has all that heat, it misses kind of the earthy bark aspects of the cinnamon. You know, those very warm sensations that aren't hot, but they're the things that give you that kind of, you know, sort of warm, earthy spice tone that kind of flows through your chest. So that I do with a tea. So take the other half of the cinnamon that you didn't use in the tincture, throw that in a small pot of water, and boil that for 15 minutes and let it steep and then strain it out and add that into your beer as well. And if you do both of those, you'll get the heat and all that cinnamon from the tincture. And then you'll get the tea providing you all the warm earthiness. And that way I think that you get the best of both worlds and you really show off the whole of the cinnamon bark or the cassia bark, depending upon what, what it is that you have. Yeah, probably can't see. So it. there you go. That's my answer. Yeah, and I think I think that if you really want to cinnamon out of beer, man, that's going to be the way to do it. So if you're doing a competition where cinnamon is supposed to be the star, go for it. All right, next question's yours. Okay, uh, and I'm, this is where I prove that uh, my French is no better than my Dutch or even my English. This question comes from Mark Antoine Beaupre via email, and he says. Hey guys, I was wondering if you were willing to answer one little question coming from Montreal. And then he asks a big question. What are your recommendations concerning the ingredients improving foam and head retention? I've been putting 5% flaked wheat into my all-grain beers for the last couple batches. It seems to work fine, but I wanted to have the input of two pros. Uh, hang on. Wait, where are the pros? I, I was going to say, hang on a second. I'll go see if I can find some. I also wish to tell you how much I appreciate your work. Your books and podcasts are literally gold to homebrewers. Oh, Mark Antoine, thank you, man. Cheers from Canada. Thanks a lot. Well, darn, you said such nice things. I guess we're going to have to try and come up with a good answer to this, huh? So let me start by citing the age-old example here, which is Duval. If you've ever had a Duval, you know that that beer has the kind of foam and head retention that a home brewer would just kill to have in their beers. And there's nothing in that beer other than pills, malt, and sugar. 
There's no wheat. There's no carapils. There's none of the stuff that people traditionally add to try and increase beer foam. The re- yeah, but there's tetra hop extract. Well, yes, which is incredible, which is incredibly foam positive. Yeah, right. And that's that's what I was getting at. Um, it's your brewing practices and especially fermentation and uh, that will get you the foam that you're looking for. And I always refer back to a great Brewer Own article written by Chris Colby, and we will post a link to that on the website because it, uh, it's something that everybody should read. And he talks about uh, developing foam-positive elements in your beer, how to keep them in your beer. He has some tests that you can do on your beer that might help you pinpoint your problems if you're having a problem. But to me, the biggest point that he makes is that if you're not having problems, things like wheat or carapils, yes, might actually help your foam. They might not, but they might. But if you're having some of the problems that he details in this article, you can add a whole bunch of this other stuff, and it won't really help anything. So... His keys are to use proper brewing procedures, uh, pitch plenty of healthy yeast, keep the fermentation temp under control, and that alone will uh, bring a a lot of foam-positive character to your beer. So rather than me just kind of like reading that article to you right now, we will post a link to it. Read it for yourself. And Mark, uh, your answer will be in that article because... I want you to do some of those tests and find out where your foam problems are or aren't, and then you'll know if adding any of those ingredients might make things better for you. Yeah, and I'll just say, to my mind, I don't think I've ever really noticed the vaunted wheat impact. I've had some of my wheat beers have had lousy head, and some of my non-weeded beers have had fantastic heads. And I suspect there's a lot more going on there. Yeah, you know, and when I developed my rye IPA recipe uh, many, many years ago, I added both carapils and wheat to it for their supposed foam-positive properties. And I have to tell you that I've made that beer a few times when I didn't have any wheat or carapils around. And there's, like, pretty much no difference. So, um, you know... Don't think that those will necessarily solve your problem if you have a problem. Get to the root of the problem and take care of that first. And then using things like wheat or carapils or other uh, high-protein ingredients uh, might help your foam. Okay? Sounds good. All right, man. You're up. All right. Next question comes from Jamie Walton in the UK. Uh, Via Facebook, he said, Word up, guys. Everybody's heard. All right. Hoping you can help. I had the inspiration driving home yesterday, listening to the New Brew Files episode, coincidentally enough. Thank you, Jamie. Everybody should listen to a New Brew Files episode. To make a Hogmanay beer themed around the first foot tradition. So a first foot is supposed to be a t- be tall and dark. All right, sorry. Let me do that again. So a first, uh, so, a f- so a first foot is supposed to be tall and dark, and they should bring coal for your fire, whiskey to drink, black bun, a rich fruit cake, basically, salt, Maybe I met that one. And an evergreen slash pine branch to represent long life. Now, I'm thinking of Scotch Ale, obviously. The tall and dark could be covered by it being fairly high gravity and making it a darker beer. Maybe use some roast barley, special bean, a bit of smoke malt to cover off a smoky dark coal. 
dark fruit mint notes for the black bun, whiskey-soaked oak chips for the whiskey. Does that sound at all appealing? A couple of points I could use an opinion on. Firstly, how big of a gravity do you think I could go for and have it being at or approaching its best by New Year's? And secondly, would using some spruce tips to represent the evergreen work in this kind of ale? I'm concerned that it would be too dark and the smoke malt would not pair with the spruce. What do you think? I could leave out the evergreen element of it, of course. It's just an idea right now. Would appreciate your thoughts, even if it's just to go, or Jimmy, that sounds awful. Well, yeah. Jimmy, I don't think it sounds awful. Well, of course um, you wouldn't. Yeah. Well, it's a story beer. No, actually, I actually, actually I can, I, I can kind of see this, man. I was like putting those flavors together in my head. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to me, this is a story beer, and Jamie's telling a good story. So, and it's a story beer that actually I think will result in a good beer. So, I'm pretty much right on board with everything that uh, Jamie put out there. I would go definitely a strong Scotch ale. I would actually even say, you know, like somewhere in about the 1080 range, make it like a track warehouse. You know, or lighter truck warehouse in terms of gravity if you want it by New Year's. Uh, definitely do whiskey and uh, infusion. You could use a smoked malt in there, and I would say if you would either do the beechwood or the oak smoke malts out of Germany, don't do peat smoke malt because peat smoke malt is a crime. It should not be used for beer, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, um, I have to agree with that. Uh alternatively you could actually have used a smoky enough scotch just say that you're getting your smoke notes from the the whiskey and do the aging that way and as for the the only part that actually gave me sort of pause and by the way you can totally use just a pinch of salt you know don't uh, don't go goza levels on the salt but just a little bit of salt will actually kind of boost some of the characters because hey that's what salt does but for the evergreen part which is the part that's annoying there are a couple thoughts I had about that because evergreen is such a potent flavor that you almost, you have to be super careful with it. So one of the thoughts I would have is to either get your hands on fresh evergreen tips, like fresh spruce tips. And if you ever have those, they're chewy, almost like a candy. And what I would actually literally do is put that on the pint glass. Ta-da! You have an evergreen garnish and that way you can have it with or without and not affect your beer. The other thought is if you really want to have it incorporated into the beer itself, take a nod from, say, a sati tradition. You know, all those, uh, all the farmhouse ales up, up north there, and throw an evergreen banch into the mash tun. Use it, uh, use it as a filtering agent. And in this particular case, I probably wouldn't go for a full mash bed made of, made of evergreen branches, but one or two would probably not hurt. So if you must have the evergreen in there, that's what I would do. As for everything else, I would actually keep your grain bill fairly simple. Mower, golden promise with a little bit of roasted barley and a little bit of special bee. And then I'll you know use that little bit of a smoke malt. But like I said, go for one of the hardwood malts and not, uh, not the peat malt. And that's what I would do. Yeah, you know what? And I'm going to uh, probably surprise you here when I'm saying, I'm going to say, throw some spruce tips into the boil. Um, that, no. yeah, uh, don't, don't overdo it. I've made a couple spruce beers, uh, and I, I actually had a really, really good one, uh, not too long ago, believe it or not. And that's me saying a good spruce beer. Um, I would say that if you were to get two to three ounces of fresh spruce tips, right? You don't want the old branches. Now's a good time of year to go out and harvest fresh spruce tips. And they freeze well. Do they? I've never tried that. Um, 
take them, bash them with something to kind of like break them, open them up a little bit, toss them in for the last five minutes of your boil and, uh, go for it. Um, I guess, I guess you could probably even try uh, your old trick of making a tincture with them, huh? And adding it to taste later on. Uh, I wouldn't do a tincture with something like spruce. Uh, any of the things with high levels of terpenes, mm-hmm. and particularly anything resinous, I don't think works very well as a tincture because uh, <laughs> the alcohol extracts all of those uh, terpene characters, but it doesn't extract the other uh, pieces that's a, as well. That's a really, really good point. Okay, yeah, so Jamie. With something like this, I would also make just a tea. Yeah. But uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I've had too many spruce beers where it, they've become pine salt, and I always shy. I'm always shy about the evergreen. Yeah, I, I am too. I mean, it, it's it, it's real, real easy to make a really bad spruce beer. So and it never goes away. <laughs> yeah. So if you actually do use evergreen, be circumspect about the amount. You know. Uh, Keep it under control. You want it to be a supporting flavor, not a dominating flavor. Yeah. All right. Last question. All right. I get this one. It is from Jesse Semph via email. Hey, guys. Love the podcast. Started at the beginning a couple months ago, and I'm about 10 episodes away from being current. And Just let me say that we're trying to not be responsible for brain damage, so don't listen too often. Uh, I've been into brewing for a few years, still extract brewing, and have been really getting into it the last year or so. I do plan to give all grain a try, likely with brew in a bag and potentially small batch all grain, like one and a half to two gallons to get my feet wet. I have a couple questions. I'd like to try making a barley wine. I did find an extract kit I'd like to try, but not sure I want two cases of the final product due to space limitations. I might try a two and a half or even a one gallon recipe. If I go one gallon, I might even try all grain. My question is the packaging, aging, and temperature. I've been kegging now for about six months, so I'm all set up for that. What is your recommendation for bottling barley wine using the keg system? Carbonate in the keg, and what level of carbonation do you recommend? Then bottle using a beer gun or something? Is bulk aging an option or not recommended? I was considering moving the product to one or more one-gallon jugs and aging prior to bottling. Would I need airlocks on the one-gallon jugs or just tight caps? Then transfer the aged product to a keg, force carb, and bottle. Finally, whether I bulk carb slash bottle slash age or bulk age slash bulk carb bottle, what temperature do you recommend for the aging? Whoa, there's a lot there. Okay, so we'll... Uh, well, well first, go listen to the last episode of The Brew Files, second half. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. There'll be some good info there because uh, we talked about barley wine in episode nine of The Brew Files. Um, okay, generally, I would have to say that barley wine is a beer that you're going to want to get some age on. Uh I've made a lot of barley wines that were great uh, when they were first bottled or kegged, and uh, almost always they turn out better down the road if you can hang on to them, which is the hard part. In that regard, I would say that your best bet, your absolute best bet, would be to, uh, after primary fermentation, 
give the barley wine maybe a month or so in a secondary, then bottle it in the traditional method uh, with priming. You may need to add some more yeast because of the gravity of the barley wine. That's going to be your absolute best bet. But if you want to bottle from your keg, I would say pretty much go through the same primary and secondary process Keg the beer, carbonate it, then use a beer gun into well-purged bottles. Let me say that again. Well-purged bottles. Fill those bottles with CO2 before you put the beer in. And that's probably how I would go about it. Uh, what do you think? Well, I mean, I don't... I mean, I, I bulk age in kegs, but I also have a bunch of kegs. So that's easy for me. Right. Um, yeah, and I'm, but yeah, I, I'm I would, making the assumption that, that Jesse doesn't. Well, and I'm, uh, yeah, I'm assuming that given that he's into kegging and still an extract brewer, I would say that he probably doesn't want to tie up a keg for as long as I'm willing to. But if you're going to go into bottles, I usually would recommend doing uh, yeast conditioned or bottle conditioned beers. However, as we just talked about in the last brew file show, depending on how big your barley wine is, uh, you could probably just get away with just putting it in the keg, carbonating it, and then bottling that way. Uh, you'll at least get sure carbonation if that's important to you. Remember, a lot of these old, older age barley wines have very little carbonation to them whatsoever. Um, but yeah, I think to me, even though you want to pick up oxidation along the way, I would do whatever process it is that gets you the least number of transfer steps. Right, exactly. Because you're gonna you're gonna have plenty of time to pick up oxidation. Yeah, yeah that's what I was gonna say. O oxidation uh, is not gonna be an issue on this. I mean, yeah, and so. Uh, for me, just simple, streamline the process. Don't overthink this. Treat it like it's a beer. Uh, I've, I don't think I've ever actually re-yeasted anything going into a bottle, no matter the strength or the weirdness of the conditions, and not had it carbonated. But that might just be the you know the universe favors fools. <laughs> um, that explains a but, lot. Yeah, but regardless, get the thing into, into your bottles. I would say if you're going to bulk age, bulk age in an airtight uh, thing. I wouldn't trust the caps on a one-gallon jug at all. So if you're going to bulk age in a one-gallon jug, put an airlock on there. But otherwise, get into the bottles and keep the thing at a nice cellar temperature, you know, say mid-60s. Yeah. And let that ride. Right, and you could even go as low as mid-50s if that's easier for you. Don't keep it too warm. Oh. And especially, yeah, do not use those jugs with the caps on them unless you uh, like picking glass shards out of things because they will explode. Let's not have any explosions. No. Less no, damage. No, no, no. I think, I think we've done a, a, a pliable job of answering questions. Yeah, I, I, I think that we were at least in the ballpark on most of those. And uh, remember, especially for the one about foam, we will post a link to Chris Colby's article because you need to read that. Yeah, and don't forget, if you have questions for the podcast and you want us to take our best swing at seeing, well, whether or not we can sound smart, you can email us at questions at experimentalbrew.com. You can leave us messages on Facebook. Well, the hell, you can leave us messages anywhere you find us, and we will make sure that we uh, get them here onto the show. Cool. Okay, and that brings us to our quick tip for the week, and it's from me, and it's quick, and it should be obvious to everyone, but... I guess it wasn't obvious to me, so maybe somebody else is going to be as stupid as I was. And that is, before you add something to your beer, taste it first. Uh, 
I had a uh, container of blood orange puree that I was given. I thought, oh, wow, cool. I'll make an IPA and add this blood orange puree to it, which I did and uh, without trying it first. And it turns out that that uh, blood orange puree kind of made the beer taste like, I would imagine, perfume tastes. It's, it was it was not a good thing. So my simple, obvious, quick tip, and maybe if you're smarter than I am, you've already thought of it. Make sure if you're going to be adding flavorings to a beer, you try them before you put it in the beer. So in other words, this is the beer equivalent of, hey, taste your food before you add salt. Uh, yeah, pretty much so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm hoping that uh, if I put enough of those Centennial hops in it that you sent me to dry hop it, then uh, maybe I can cover it up. <laughs> Okay. Well, sometimes you can't. Sometimes you can't put perfume on a pig, and I don't know if you can put hops into a perfume. But yeah, all right, yeah, we'll find out. So, what have you been doing other than beer? Well, you guys know me. I'm constantly on YouTube or listening to other podcasts or doing other weird things like that. But I really discovered a couple months ago, thanks to uh, the great big old British dog competition called Cruffs, uh, dog agility work, and Cruffs has. A YouTube channel, and that's uh, C R U F T S, Crufts, and they, amongst all the other things, all the stupid stuff, you know, with dog breeds, you know, it's like, oh, look at this thing's hips slope the right way, the tail's the right shape, the nose points the wrong way, you know, whatever. I hate, I hate breed conformity competitions because I think it's the worst thing in the world for dogs. But agility is cool because it's dogs being dogs, and these competitions that they run are amazing to watch these dogs go up and down ramps and through tunnels and in between chicanes and. You know, everything else and, and make all these jumps. And so Cross has like all these different videos online about the competitions, all these different rounds. And what's really cool is they separate out into different size dogs, right? So you have a small, medium, and large. But the best ones out there are they have a whole sort of non-competition series for rescue dogs. And it's rescue dogs doing agility work. Oh, cool. And the rescue dogs aren't as focused as as the purebreds that have been trained from day one to do this. But the rescue dogs are out there, and they're having so much great fun, and the commentators are having fun, and everybody's having fun watching them. So I will include a link to some of them. And some of these guys I've posted to, to my Facebook feed before, and some of them have become kind of internet famous like Otto. You really just have to watch them. They're amazing because they're dogs being dogs. Yeah, you know what? And we've had border collies for many, many years. And although we don't enter them in uh, trials like that, we enjoy watching the sheepdog trials when they happen around here. Man, there is there is nothing more fun than just watching a dog run flat out down a field. And I mean, you can just see him enjoying himself or her. Oh, yeah. So we'll include a link to that. But by all means, uh, totally do that. I'm actually tempted. I have two lazy chihuahuas. And I have a Chihuahua Corgi Pitbull mix thing that can't run very fast. But I have another Chihuahua who can run like the wind. I'm tempted to go find classes for her and see if I can't make her run up and down things. <laughs> Jeez. Maybe she'll make you run up and down things. Well, I mean, look, if you watch the people doing these competitions, it seems like part of the point. <laughs> yeah, it does, doesn't it? So I think that about wraps it up for this week. I think so. I think we're done. Cool. Let's do this. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening to the Experimental Brewing Podcast. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, which is experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. Uh, who knows? We may be on a lot more platforms pretty soon. 
I'm on a number of beer forums out there, uh, the American Homebrewers Association Forum, uh, you, you name it, I'm there. Uh, Drew hangs out on the Reddit Homebrewing Forum. If you want to ask... And Slack. And, oh, and Slack. Yeah, right. Something new that I didn't know about. If you want to ask us a question or suggest topics, recipes, or experiments, or even just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to contact each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. So, we'll be back with another episode in a couple weeks. Until then, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. (laughs) 